Uh, Derek, you tell me the coolest thing about yourself. Um, well, my name is Derek Yu, and Yu is a pretty cool word to have as your last name. <laughs> <laughs> Why, hello there. I'm Steve Gaynor, and you're listening to Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. And the video game developer in question today is Derek Yu, the creator of Spelunky. Uh, I'm, I'm still in, uh, I think this is the last of my GDC interviews for this year, so I'm here in, in uh, Derek's hometown of San Francisco to chat. Thanks for coming over to talk with me, Derek. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Good to be here. Uh, we were just talking about how we have done, like, a shorter version of this kind of thing, like I think six years ago now, when uh, Chris Remo and I interviewed you for just the Idle Thumbs like GC special. Um, but a lot has happened in, in, yeah. in the intervening six years. Well, I say a lot has happened, but like not that much has happened as far as the public is concerned. Like Spelunky was already out at that time, and Spelunky 2 has now been announced. But aside from that, well, it'll true. be interesting to talk about like what that intervening time has been like for you along with kind of what you know led up to to that so um yeah thanks for thanks for taking the time today um you know i think that that a lot of people know that you were were you the did you create take source the independent game source website or were you just like one of the co-founders i didn't create it i didn't found it it was already around i think Maybe for a year okay. or two. But you were very yeah. early on. It was like, pretty helping. I think it was pretty early on. I, I yeah. actually, the way I even found out about it was I did an interview with Jordan Magnuson, okay. Flaming Pear, who okay. was the founder. He's like the sole founder. Okay. It gotcha. was just a Blogspot blog oh, at okay. the time, and he asked me, I think just via email, if you want, if I would do an interview with him. Oh, cool. And I did. Uh, he just interviewed me about Black Eye Software, which is just my little company that I had when I was a kid. Right, right. Freeware games. <laughs> cool. And so we talked about that, and we talked about what my plans were and stuff. But I found out about Tig Source through yeah, that yeah. interview. Because I, I feel like things that people know about you are first and foremost Splunky, and then going back from there, you being a real driving force in helping create that community around like the early to mid tig source days that so many games came out of and then your involvement with aquaria and and other other titles so um how did you how did you get into make like okay so you were making games as a kid like since you were a, a kid like before that like as a child yeah so wait so like how young were you when you made your first video game? Are you like the are you like the the like Picasso of <laughs> game where you were like, oh, I, I painted this you know portrait when I was like six that is in museums now. <laughs> I I did start drawing really early, okay, like age. Because yeah, because you also do the like kind of iconic art for your games that has really yeah, I, I do the artwork well. for yeah, my yeah. games. Yeah. Um, so yeah, drawing was my first love and yeah. hobby, but I had video games around me. Ever since I was I was a kid, right. like my parents had an Atari twenty six hundred when I was born. Yeah, right. And stuff like that. But drawing was like kind of the first creative thing that I remember doing. Yeah. Um, and you know that translated into drawing games on paper, just designing games. Yeah. And I met my friend John Perry in second grade, and he had similar interests, like drawing, like video games, and so 
we would go to each other's houses and design games on paper. Yeah. And then Click and Play came along, and I was probably like 11 or 12 yeah. when it came out. I think that was 1993. Right. And Click that was kind of the big game changer where like... <laughs> No pun. No pun intended. No I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but click, click and play, that was click and play with a K at the beginning, right? Yeah, click and play with a K. And was, I forget, was that like a Mac thing or was that on Windows? It was on Windows. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that was, was sort of like a, it was like a, it was sort of like a proto game maker, proto flash kind of like game making engine. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, for me it was big before that i i kind of like fooled around with basic and yeah. i think visual basic but that was when really like i could make games yeah because it just let you do everything in in one sort of easy interface yeah and it just made sense like oh this is how you should be making games for <laughs> me at least yeah right because programming i was interested in it because it was the way to make games but i i wasn't like just super interested in programming in and of itself. Yeah, I think you know people who really like programming, they just like programming and right. they want to see how the computer works and just you know change things with, yeah. through programming. I just want to yeah. make games. It's like people who love math for math's sake. Yeah, for exactly. like understanding it and, and engaging right. with it. Yeah, for right. sure. And yeah, it's like yeah. for me, yeah, math programming. These things are all interesting within the context of game making. Right. And uh, yeah. Click and play. I, I really love that. Just everything was built into this package, yeah. and you know it's pretty clunky, but it's it's actually it can be kind of fun to work within those constraints too. Right, for sure. And Did, so yeah. So before you actually got to use like click and play to make games on a computer, what kinds of games were you drawing on paper, or the games that you were making up just like in notebooks? They were very inspired by Nintendo right. games that I was playing at the time. Yeah, because I have that same experience of like, you know, I ended up being a level designer and I had a bunch of notebooks that were like my drawings of like new levels for like, I really liked like Double Dragon and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game and stuff. So I have all these and here's this new enemy and new level yeah. for, you know, these games for Contra or something. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember John and I had this game called The Fuzz Game that was very inspired by a boy and his blob okay. of all games. <laughs> so instead of a blob, it was a fuzz? You, yeah, you can. Tr I think you are the fuzz. Oh, okay. But you can change your shape. Right, right. So instead of, you know, feeding... This creature, jelly beans. You are the creature, right? And I remember making a lot of levels for that. <laughs> I mean, Boyan's Blob is. I, I I played that when it was out as well because I think it was one of those games that just had a certain, just sort of like core fantasy draw for a kid where you're just like, oh, I have this weird pet and if I feed it things, it changes shape and I can like climb it like a ladder or whatever. And like, yeah, totally. That's, I, I think there's something that's really, that sparks the imagination about that. And then the actual game itself is insane <laughs> and like incredibly difficult to actually do anything. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah, just sitting there just throwing jelly beans into the blob's mouth like, yeah. one after the other. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably a lot more fun to design levels for your Boy and His Blob spinoff than to actually play the Boy and His Blob. <laughs> I think you're totally right. I don't actually remember playing a Boy and His Blob too much, yeah. but it's one of those things where, yeah, exactly, it piques your imagination yeah. as yeah. a kid. It's so were you working on those, like, as a as a pair with your friend? Like, you guys were, like, designing, like, doing, making up these games together, or was it, like, 
you were kind of just making up stuff on your own and then sharing them? Both. Um, we we did a lot of uh, designing games together. And actually, John is the one who ended up joining Black Eye Software with me. Okay. So we, like, when I made the transition to click and play, he and I did it together, really. Okay. And we started Black Eye Software, and then we found the click and play community online. Yeah. And we just shared our games on there, and we talked with the other... It was mostly kids on, on the click-and-play community. Right, right. And it, it was, was a very this interesting was on like, place. Like, for, like, forum, like, click-and-play forum? Yeah. Like, on AOL or something? Or There was a BBS called The Wall that was run by this middle-aged woman named Pat, I think, was her real name. She called herself Silky. Wow. Yeah. That's... Everything about what you just said is perfect. <laughs> It is, and there is a photo of her actually, and she had this very bright red, poofy hair, yeah. and she was just wearing this denim jean jacket in the photo. It's kind of a glamour shot. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, and she—I mean, she was super cool. She yeah. gave us this place to hang out. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. Talk about games and advertise our games to each other, and yeah. would just yeah, share all kinds of details. I mean, it was like it was a little microcosm. Yeah, and it it. I've always said it, it felt like the nascent indie game community right. to me. With and so I feel like I got a lot of practice kind of being an indie game developer. Yeah. When, when you were still in like middle school. Yeah. yeah. And just, yeah, there were, from there, other sites popped up. And there were, you know, sites that were news sites and review sites. And people had their own little podcasts and things like that, like very early on. Yeah. They'd actually just like get like Windows Sound Recorder out and just record themselves talking about click and play games that they had played and stuff. I think so. That's yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's all about click and play, and these are all developers too. Right. So these are all mostly kids developing games in click and play, and then running websites about click and play. Yeah. Advertising their games on each other's sites and reviewing each other's games, and that's you know, amazing. All the drama. There's like right. people poaching. <laughs> Various yeah, developers right. from like, oh my gosh, you, <laughs> you know, stole my artist. So and so joined virtually real when they were part of this other team. <laughs> it was a very full-bodied experience. Yeah, it sounds very microcosmy. Yeah, it sounds intense, kind of. Sounds it was, very, sounds very dense. It was. I mean, you can imagine this is a very, almost like an addictive thing to get into, right? Because it's this whole. It is almost yeah. a game in and of itself. It's kind of its own little world. I feel like a lot of people have that kind of experience around that era with, like, clans. For sure. In multiplayer games. Yeah, stuff. I mean, reading an Anthropy ZZT book from Boss Fight, yeah. I got the same sense. Like, she had a, a very similar experience with ZZT. Yeah. yeah. As another type of tool from back then. Right. ZZT, you can make... Stuff that it, it kind of stuff that kind of looks visually a little bit like. Um, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but my the way I picture it is you make stuff that maybe is like ASCII art kind of stuff. Yeah, right. mostly right. you can make games with ASCII art. Yeah. And then yeah, I mean, even that got more advanced. There's like Mega Zayuks where you could like make your own little tiles and it added all right. kinds of. Yeah, it makes me think of um, uh, Dwarf Fortress and how there's tile sets for Dwarf Fortress and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, with, with click and play, was it the kind of thing where you could like make a build of your game and then just upload it? Or did you have to have click and play to play click and play games? No, you can make standalone executables. That's awesome. Yeah. That seems really advanced. 
It was. I think it was super ahead of its time. I mean, yeah. it was kind of the first tool that did all of that. I mean, I, there were like other game making tools, I think around that time, but that was the first that felt really full yeah. where like you could, yeah, make your, any type of game that you wanted, yeah. you know? And, and you can make an executable with like it. Visual Basic or whatever, but it's not really, it's not a tool set. It's a exactly. language. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Huh. So was, how much, how much breadth was there in what it was capable of creating? Like it, could you basically make practically any kind of 2D game in click and play or was it more constrained? Yeah, you could make pretty much anything, I think. I mean, people made obviously platformers and just kind of simple action games people also made pretty complex rpgs and things like that in wow. it. um yeah i mean it, as people learn the tool the games just got more and more advanced yeah. people figured out tricks and stuff yeah. and they released new versions of click and play uh did as you have time to like, went on did you have to like go to comp usa and buy the upgraded version in a box or could you actually like patch it that's a good question. The first version of Click and Play I got, I, I'm pretty sure I just got it in the mail. Yeah. I think I just ordered it. Which, by the way, for context, for people who are 10 plus years younger than us, you used to buy computer programs in retail stores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, for, just for point of reference. I mean, yeah, I know. I remember seeing the like, Doom floppies just sitting on the counter. Yeah. Like the shareware versions. You're like, oh my gosh. You... I, f I feel like I can picture the click and play like logo or like box art because it was pretty distinctive as well, I, even though I never used it. Yeah, I it's a like big I... white box. Yeah. And there's just all this stuff coming out of it. It's very exciting. It's yeah. like all this stuff just exploding out of a, a mouse. <laughs> Yeah, because I, you know, when I got into making my own stuff, it was primarily through mod tools and map making tool sets that like came with games. So I was always one step of remove from just like we're selling you a tool set. You know, right. like I was always like I got Duke Nukem 3D and now I can make my own stuff for it or, or whatever. So it seems really exciting for you to at a young age have been able to be like, no, I'm gonna go straight to here's a thing to just make what I want to make as like, that's its purpose. How did you, how did you even get, get it? Why did you, why did you start using click and play? I'm pretty sure I just saw an ad for it in a magazine. And yeah. at that time, you know, I'm so hungry for anything that lets me make games. Yeah. I'm just anything that looks remotely like I could make a game. Yeah. With it. I, yeah. I, I uh, yeah. And too. I was always super attracted to that too. And in the NES era, I made my own excite bike tracks because they yeah. included a track editor and excite bike and yeah, like a couple sure. other games where you could make your own, like, you know, it was very like rubber stampy, but yeah, you know, there was just that, I think as a kid, just that like hunger to be like, I love these things. Anything that's like, you can make your own. It's like, Oh, well, how, how do I, okay. I'm, I'm on, I'm there for it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, later on at school, we, we got these TI 83 calculators. Right. And that became a big platform for us to make games on. Yeah. Because, you know, we could sit in class and, <laughs> and make games. Right. And then you can share the games with everyone in school. Yeah. With like a link cable or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that actually became a, a pretty big thing at my school. Yeah. And that's just another experience that I think really helped me. Or just prepared me for the whole indie game thing. Yeah. It just seemed like these things kind of all led up to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were, you basically have been going back to 
foundational structures that you were building from very early on. And you're like, well, I'll do that again, but on a different scale or on a different platform yeah. or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I just I feel very fortunate just to be able to start making games yeah. in such a complete way from an early time without really obviously having any conscious idea of what's going on, right? right. Like, I'm just interested in games and yeah. then these opportunities are available to yeah. me. It feels like <clears throat> the kind of advantages that people have if they, like, start learning a language or playing an instrument early or if yeah. they grow up in a showbiz family or something. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And I always give my parents so much credit for really? supporting me and yeah. just giving me these opportunities. Did they work in, like, technology fields? My dad did, yeah. And my mom is trained as a chemist, so they're oh, wow. they're both scientifically oriented yeah, yeah. But, like i said they had an atari 2600 when i was born right right and they've always enjoyed games themselves too cool so and, and my dad um in particular also really liked to draw so we drew nice. a lot together yeah and yeah, yeah and yeah even my mom too so it, it was just it was a really great environment yeah, for yeah. me to be in it yeah. makes sense that <laughs> That led to like what you ended up doing. I mean, it seems like you were just surrounded by a vital version of all those things. Yeah, and just it's a like very supportive yeah. environment. Yeah, that's awesome. Stuff. I forget. Are you from? Are you like native to San Francisco? You no, from? Southern California. Okay. Yeah. Why did you move to San Francisco? I went to school at Berkeley. Oh, okay. And then after Berkeley, I just lived with my parents for a year. Okay. Very burnt out yeah, after school. Yeah. School is just wasn't a place I, I really liked school but um and I met a, you know a lot of friends and and overall I thought it was a great experience but it was also just so tiring for me and yeah what were you studying computer science okay it was a it was a difficult program at, at Berkeley yeah Berkeley is a pretty hard, like it's, it's a well-known CS school right yeah yeah and they I just had a really hard time balancing my classes and making games which i kept doing throughout college like i released eternal daughter with the final version right. of click and play which is called multimedia fusion oh, wow. so that got started in high school and i released it with john yeah when we were i think it was after our first year okay. of college god now i'm just having flashbacks i'm like oh yeah i played eternal daughter <laughs> like like around when it came out or maybe sometime nice. after and i and then i'm like oh right you made that fucking jack thompson like yeah gay. Like, I'm like that was in i think i but, did that in college also. yeah that was that was a little later but i'm like oh right like i've yeah i've played a lot of Derek U games over the years because you <laughs> you've been so like prolific over time you know and and i think that people that your your work has drawn attention i got used to over time in that like way. making games from beginning to end and releasing them to an audience really early on yeah and i just feel like that has helped me so much that that just kind of organically happened right right and yeah like i said i gave my parents a lot of credit they got me click and play we had aol so right. i had all these opportunities to yeah, make a game, put it out there. Yeah. And uh, just being able to interact with an audience and kind of get that experience and get a taste for that yeah. has been so helpful. I mean, I when I got my first emails, 
through AOL for my first release game, the click and play, Trigger Happy. That was just so huge for me at twelve. Yeah. To to get emails from people saying like, "Hey, I really like this game. Are you going to make more?" Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a, you, like you're not just putting something out into a void. You're not just drawing in a notebook and now it's in your bedroom. Yeah. It's like people are like, "Oh, they 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 actually." Took their time to play this thing and took their time to tell me they liked they liked it enough to tell me. Like, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And then I started websites for Black Eye Software where yeah. I would basically keep a blog and you know, I would put my own little BBS on that site and right. interact with people who I got to know through the games. Yeah. And it it just gives you so much experience, not just with making a game, but scoping a project. Right. How do you get from beginning to end? You know, that part. Yeah. How do you actually ship it? Yeah. <laughs> How do you not just work on your click and play game for five years and never release it? <laughs> exactly. And, and it, it. Which is interesting because a lot of people don't even have that impulse, I think. I think that's actually a really advanced thing to even care about when you're 12 or 13. You know, like, how am I actually going to put this out into the world? Like, yeah. Clearly, a lot of people are just like, I'll mess with this and I'll lose interest in. You know, that's that's and all I there think is, it's right? yeah, and I think it's it's tough, especially as you get older. I feel like if you don't have that experience, you can get more and more anxious about people seeing your work. Right. Whereas when you're younger, you still have that impulse of like, like, hey, hey, look what I did. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. Well, and it's and and it's also very early, like aversion therapy it's like it's like you've you have been putting it in front of people and they have been reacting to it and it's not as scary because you're more used to it right like people i I do you know some amount of like doing talks at conferences and stuff like that and you know you always have some amount of nerves but i don't generally feel uncomfortable going up and doing a, a presentation or whatever and i credit a lot of that for the fact that i did some small amount of like theater stuff when I was like in middle school. Oh yeah. And so I, you know, when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, I got used to being like, you go up, there's an audience, you say your stuff, it's fine. Yeah. And and I think that, that having that kind of exposure early to just like, this is okay. You know, I, I don't need to have this be like a phobia later is kind of what you were experiencing. Yeah, exactly. There's so many skills to make and release a game, it requires, I think, such a broad range of skills, so many of which you wouldn't think of right. when you think about making a game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you think about programming, you think about art, yeah, music, you know, things like that, and you don't think about, yeah, what it takes to actually put it out there in front of people. Yeah. And then talking about your game to people, trying to explain your vision and things like that. Yeah. Communicating with your partners, right? Yeah. Getting yeah, yeah. bad feedback, criticism, how to deal with that. Yeah. And and how to either, how to kind of sort through it. How to either be like, sure, but I can't do anything about that, or this can actually make what I'm doing better. Right. You know? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does this feedback actually mean? Right. So what were, what were some of the earliest click and play games that you made? What, what were they at? Like, what was the premise? What was the pitch for some of them? The I think the very first game there are a couple games that didn't get released before Trigger Happy, which okay. was the first one I released. What was Trigger Happy like? 
Trigger Happy was just a top-down death match game. <laughs> I heard there were some positive emails about it. Yeah, so. there is. <laughs> Sounds like it was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so was, was it multiplayer? It is multiplayer okay. only. There are three arenas, single screen. It's just a top-down shooter. Yeah. You can pick up different weapons. It was inspired by Doom. Yeah. And playing yeah. Doom Deathmatch, but it was... 2D top down. Yeah, so sort of like something between Doom and like Tank on the Atari. Kind of, yeah. yeah. You ran around, you could pick up, you start with a pistol, you could pick up a machine gun, a flamethrower, a rocket launcher. Yeah. There are traps that you could trigger uh, depending on the stage. Okay. Where you could step on like a false plate and arrows would shoot out of a stone <laughs> statue. Actually, now that I think about yeah. it, very similar to I was, I was like, wait, that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And so you could try to get the other player to run across the traps or you could trigger and try to get them to buy it. Yeah. yeah, I mean that sounds that does sound pretty uh, pretty well thought out for 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 a for a game made by a tween. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I mean that, that has that sounds like it has a like the you run around and you have a pistol machine gun rocket launcher, pretty standard, but then the like strategic element of trying to game the other player with these environmental traps that sounds like the kind of next layer of being interesting that sure that, yeah. that seems like it probably made it stand out to, to people when they encountered it i guess so yeah i think yeah yeah i yeah. just i put it up on aol and yeah i got some good feedback about it that's cool what what other kind of stuff did you make it some because i feel like by the time that uh, I became, or that probably most of the public became familiar with your work later on with like, you know, when you were in like high school and college and stuff with Eternal Daughter and, and going forward to Aquaria and, and other things like side-scrolling is kind of what you've become known for. Right. Did, did you kind of move into side-scrolling and platforming games early? Uh, not really. Eternal Daughter was, I think... Yeah, I don't think we made too many platformers before Eternal Daughter, actually. Okay. It was mostly um, top-down stuff, I feel like. Okay. We had a game called Snow Brawl, which was a snowball fighting game. Right. Where, you know, it was kind of like a very early tower defense game. Yeah. Because what would happen is there'd be different waves and in between waves you could build up your snow fortress you yeah. could build walls you could build snowmen that were would act as decoys you could build catapults okay. that would launch snowballs like yeah. giant snowballs and you know the the different things took various amounts of time to build like the catapult took the most time to build and then right. the wave would start and from the top of the screen just a bunch of little kids would come down and they would throw snowballs at you. And there yeah. are different types where, you know, there's the weak one and there was the one that threw snowballs faster. And right. like in the later levels, there were Zambonis that would just come down and just <laughs> tear through anything you'd built up. And it would just go back and forth between building and fighting yeah. like that. Huh. And that game yeah, ended up being pretty popular. And then we made a puzzle game called Diabolica. Mm. That was a chain reaction yeah. game where these demons would appear on this board, which was a grid, and you would place little monsters, and the monsters would explode in different directions. Okay. But you only had a certain number of detonators, so the idea was to build these chains that would 
blow up as many demons as possible on the board each turn with I like see. two detonators or something yeah, like yeah. that. Huh. And those were a couple of our more popular games with click and play. At one point we announced Trigger Happy 2, which was we we released a demo for it and it was a stealth based game. Oh wow. Metal Gear esque. Yeah. Okay. And in that demo you're kind of infiltrating this villa and you've got to assassinate this guy somewhere inside the villa and their yeah. guards and you could sneak up and like snap people's necks and stuff or you could choose to do like a just full frontal assault kind of thing yeah and we released that demo got the whole click and play community really hot bothered because <laughs> i think at that point we'd put out uh diabolic and maybe snow brawl so people were pretty excited yeah for what was next and we were saying oh trigger happy too and it's you know the demo was seemed pretty epic and we told people about all our plans and got everyone really hyped right, up right. and then the development just really lagged on that yeah and john and i kind of lost interest and so from there we pivoted to eternal daughter but okay. yeah it really disappointed people a lot yeah and it kind of became this running joke of owen's <laughs> trigger happy two coming out <laughs> but yeah maybe, it's maybe. just another experience yeah I mean, like maybe, sometimes you have to it'll do be that. after spelunky too yeah, yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed click and play community <laughs> Sometimes I honestly do entertain the idea of just putting Trigger Happy 2 out. Hey, I mean, it's a long life. Closing off that yeah, yeah, chapter. Yeah, like, why not someday? I mean, what a weird, like, as far as things that, like, you get headlines written about them, like, Creator Spelunky finishes game right. he started as a teenager. Well, there <laughs> was like... a click and play game, I can't remember the name, but it took some guy... 14 years or something right to right it. yeah it did make the news yeah i thought that was really cool <laughs> yeah so so you're yeah you you kind of had it seemed like you had a lot of very fortunate early experiences not just putting the game out and 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 learning what having a community reaction means but having like a development partner like you were on yeah. like a like an indie dev team from childhood not just like making games and putting them them out and that's totally pretty, that's pretty awesome yeah did you guys go to school go to college together we did it berkeley? Okay. no okay. i went to berkeley and john went to usc okay so yeah we went to elementary school through high school together but and it then, was really fortunate to meet john yeah did, did you keep making games like you know remotely in college or did it kind of break it off when you had to be in different places it kind of broke off after eternal daughter we were both pretty burnt out i think john in particular wanted to just try different things yeah he got into music and film cool during college he uh, eventually got really into board and card games oh nice and i kind of stuck with the games a little bit but i i started to feel really just pessimistic about continuing to make games as a career yeah. i think not having john was a kind of a big blow sure to me i think getting burnt out at school trying to keep up like making games and going to school and just being so tired yeah doing yeah. that i i was just really overwhelmed yeah and so i started to gravitate more towards illustration comic books just going back to drawing yeah i found some cool artistic communities online just like visual art communities online yeah did you feel so do you feel like you had a fairly serious like kind of hiatus from being a game maker to just focus on on art and, and drawing and stuff yeah okay pretty much yeah how, how long 
was it that you kind of stepped away from the game stuff and focused on your other creative work? Who's like the second half of college and then a couple years after college, maybe. Okay, gotcha. And then eventually that Jack Thompson game and then Aquaria got me back in. And Tig Source right. was a big deal finding yeah. that. So wait, was Jack Thompson's challenge the thing that got you back into making games? You know, kind of. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. But... Okay, there's another headline. Thank yeah. Jack Thompson for Spelunky. <laughs> so, so for for the for people that don't have context, um, Jack Thompson was this clown man um, from the '90s and early 2000s who was like a lawyer guy that was big into like the like anti-violent video games thing. And he's been, like, disbarred multiple times and it's just kind of whatever. But he was, like, a media figure for a while where he would, like, go on cable TV and talk about how violent yeah. games were bad. And he he made this this crazy... Was it, like... Was, it wasn't... It was, like, a text statement that he put out or something, right? Yeah. Like, a press release or something where he was, like... He was, like, I dare, basically game developers to make this game where you kill game developers yeah and it was called i the well the game i made was called i'm okay i'm okay right His... but, but didn't he say that that was what it had to be called or something wasn't that maybe the challenge i think it he was, could have been i think he was like i think he was like if game developers really think that violent video games aren't bad someone needs to make a game it's called i'm okay about how you do all this really specific stuff and then like yeah. kill a bunch of people and then you were like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, like, followed his, like, crazy blueprint of, like, these things have to happen in the in the game. I followed it to a T because yeah. it was actually very detailed. It was actually yeah, a very exactly. good He had a very specific document. idea. Yeah. So, so... so there, were some, there was some sick stuff in there, too. Yeah. I yeah. remember at the end of the first level, he specifically said you had to pee on the brains. <laughs> On the brains. Yeah. On the brains. <laughs> On the brains of your victim. So... Who so, was some actual person, I think? It was, like, the head of some game company. Right. Of, like, Activision or something. Yeah, you had to kill them in their home and then pee on their brains. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so the... So, the, so you made it as, like, a side-scrolling kind of pixel art yeah. thing. And I remember that getting, you know, getting, like, good amounts of press because it was like you know in in current day headline format this indie developer actually made the game jack thompson wanted or something and so yeah you made this whole crazy thing where you're like just this psychopath with a gun that goes left to right and like yeah pees on people's brains and whatnot yeah <laughs> whatnot and like what was that experience like for you because like as far as getting back into games after a time away from it and then kind of in a way that's very sort of like lightning rod weird like yeah did you ever hear from jack thompson about no, it okay not Fine. directly yeah, yeah, unfortunately yeah. but yeah what, what was it, it would like? have been great if he came back and was like i knew you could do it derek <laughs> <laughs> i always believed in you yeah um but he's yeah, playing what? the heel to, to get me back <laughs> into game development what what was the yeah what was it like Okay, so... Okay, okay. So it was okay. made in Multimedia Fusion. Okay. 
I made it with a bunch of people that I met through Black Eye Software. Okay. Who I continued to communicate with during this hiatus period yeah. on my own personal forums. Yeah. Okay. That were attached to my website. Okay. Was um, God was a uh, uh, the guy who I'm a jackass for forgetting his name, but Paul. Uh, he, he he did the art for like the um, Scott Pilgrim game. Oh, Paul Roberts. Yeah, was was he involved in that? No, okay. Because I feel like the kind of over the topness of the visual style of I'm Okay specifically reminds me of Paul Roberts. Yeah, stuff. and with the big heads and stuff right, like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, just definitely. sort of the grotesquerie of some right. of the. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But no, he wasn't involved. Okay, okay. Um, but uh, so so basically, you had maintained this community through your your forums, and then you got a bunch of those people together to to rise to this crazy challenge. Yeah, I was still active online and I had a little community based around Black Eye Software. Yeah, yeah. I I think especially during that time, just being online and talking to people was was really good. Like, I really needed that. And right. Yeah, because it... I mean, it, it's just hard to find people that have those same interests, right? right. In video games and game development. And like the specific kind of game stuff that you're interested in. Yeah. Not just like... You know, who can you talk to about Jack Thompson and his right. modest proposal? Right. Like <laughs> yeah, John was, was very fortunate to meet someone like John just in person, have a friend like that. Right. Who not just wants to play games with you, but wants to make things. Yeah. Yeah. With you. Well, and I, I think that, you know, the, the later time in your life, the kind of like late college and post-college time when you had this, you know, online community that supported you... That was very much the same time that, it, like, the same kind of stage in life that I was in when I got involved in the Idle Thumbs community. Oh, for similar reasons, because, like, I was in college, I really cared about games, and I realized I wanted to make them, but, like, I didn't know anyone else in my life who had that kind of interest at all. Like, I, I had a friend later, uh, one of my friends from college, that was like, oh, yeah, like, you know... When, when we were in college and you were just part of our friend group and everything, it was like, oh yeah, Steve, like the weird, like funny thing about Steve is like, he really likes video games. That's just kind of, yeah, that's... That's your quirk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then everybody else is like, go on, go hang out. And, and so, yeah, you kind of have to find that somewhere else. So when I was in college, I like, I made zines where I wrote about what I thought about games and I like put them in local shops because I was just like I don't know how to like communicate with anyone that's about this awesome stuff that do I you still about. have any of those zines I do yeah yeah. have I mean, you put those online I haven't scanned them or anything I've taken some so photos of them because I also was I, I did like comics and drawing and illustration when I was growing up so I like drew the cover art and stuff like that so yeah nice. it was fun but like I did like three issues of it and I was glad that I did, but I was like, I don't want to keep printing these because it's like, I, I'm just wasting money and I, you know, it's like expensive to just print these things for no reason. Um, but I want to keep writing about games. And so actually, so we're at GDC. It's Thursday. The, um, the awards were last night and they gave Tim Schafer a Lifetime Achievement Award last yeah. night. And so when I was finishing college, I was like, I don't want to, I want to keep writing about games somewhere. And I was looking at the Double Fine Action News, like Double Fine website news update page, and there was a sidebar, there was links, and one of the links was just idle thumbs, and I was like, what's this? And I clicked on it, and then I 
started reading their articles and I was like, well, these guys seem like, like you're saying, like they care about the same kind of stuff I do and they're writing about the same kinds of things that I've been thinking about. So I emailed them and I sent them my review of Doom 3 as a writing sample and I was like, do you want to have me write for your website? And so, you know, fast forward, like Chris Remo, you know, wrote the music for Gone Home and like those guys, you know, run Campo Santo and you know, we've, we've had that community of now we are the people that support each other in like making games and running our companies and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's because when you find that group of disparate people who've all been drawn together by an interest and they're in a place, it's like, like you're saying, it's, it's incredibly powerful to be like, Oh, I'm not the only one in my life that cares about this. I can have my views informed by what they're bringing to it. And also thank you, Tim Schafer, for yeah. <laughs> making all of that shit happen in a weirdly indirect way. But. I know. It is it is crazy, right? When you trace these kinds of connections back, it always feels so serendipitous. And it feels so much... You know, it always involves a lot of different people's work to kind of put it together. Like yeah. you said, yeah, Tim had to start Double Fine and create that website and then <laughs> someone linked that on the website and you found that. And yeah. it's just so yeah, all these connections, it's just so crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still um actively like keep up with people that, you know, like helped make I'm okay or were part of that that community? Or is that something that all those folks have kind of drifted apart? Yeah. They they drifted apart part a bit i did run into one of them um at the i did a book reading for the spelunky book at gdc mm. i think it was last year yeah and one of them showed up cool phelan parker and surprised me yeah never met him in real life before, oh really so it was such That's a big rad. shock it was great to see him <laughs> yeah um but yeah other than that the people that were on the Black Eye software forms, yeah. Really yeah, the, there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, transference into the take source forums and, and stuff. No, yeah. because it seemed like, for the most part, they kind of had their own lives and yeah. didn't really get into game development, as far as I know, yeah. after that. Yeah, yeah. And then with TIG Source, it was people who were wanted to be indie game developers. Right. And, yeah. You know, go to GDC and hang out together and make games. Yeah. For a living. Right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> you released this this wacky Jack Thompson game. Um and then did that in some way lead directly into you being involved with the Aquaria? Yes. Film? I met Alec through that game. Okay. Alec contacted me because he read about the game on Slashdot. I I don't even think it was a Slashdot post about it. I think it was a comment someone oh, made really? under a slash dot post he found out and then we started working together. Yeah. And I feel like I read about it on like Rock Paper Shotgun or something. Oh really? Yeah, something like that. That may have been more recent like than like yeah, kind of maybe, a maybe they weren't established. retrospective. Well no because no because I played it when it came out. That, oh, really? that shit was like two thousand one or something. Two thousand two? I'm pretty sure it got linked on the Penny Arcade Oh, website you know because they made a big deal about the Jack Thompson. Thing. I bet that was it because I was totally reading those news posts like when I was in college. Right. So it was probably yep. from that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It could yeah, have yeah. been from there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I met Alec that he worked on. I'm okay. Yeah. Really. He did music and he did some programming also. 
and Alec was just so gung ho about the project. Alec is just such a gung ho person about game making. Yeah. Supremely passionate and super just hardworking, talented. Yeah. And so when we were working on I'm okay together, I think there was an instant connection where it's like, okay, this guy's really into making games too. And eventually he showed me his Aquaria prototype. Um, but before that, we yeah, we talked. There was just a lot of downtime, I think, where the other pers- people on the project were busy with their own lives and we we're kind of waiting on them. And Alec and I would just chat and we would just talk about ourselves and our games. And we even started just making some side games together. Cool. And those didn't really pan out, but then Aquaria, he showed me the prototype and that became the Aquaria that yeah. we eventually released as our first commercial project. Yeah. What was your main involvement with Aquaria? Because I also played that when it came out. And I, I I guess in my own head, I feel like you were more art-focused on, on that game, but was it more of a holistic connection to that game? or? Yeah. I mean... The prototype was Alex, but the prototype didn't have any kind of story. It just had the mermaid in this underwater library, and you could swim around. It had a very basic control scheme yeah. of using the mouse and having Nyjah, the protagonist, follow the mouse around. Um, but I, I would say Alec and I shared the design credit. Yeah. Um, I feel like... I feel like more of Alex, I guess, soul maybe went into the narrative, but we, we really talked about everything design re- related together. Okay. And um, other than that, I was responsible for the artwork and the level design. Okay. I did a little bit of scripting of some of the enemies and things like that. Okay. But yeah, Alec did the programming he did the music and he actually did a lot of the animation because the animation is procedural right yeah that's what i remember it felt like the the that Nigel was kind of built of yeah. segmented sprites yeah it's was... the paper doll kind right. of animation and yeah. he actually did a lot of that really alec is is as good as he is at music and programming he's not bad at art either yeah hey a triple threat. Yeah, totally. <laughs> if not a if not a quadruple or exactly. double threat. <laughs> and just a nice guy to boot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think of that game as being part of a distinctive like a distinctive era in indie game development when like indie game development was really pre-mainstream where it was like it was aquaria and gish and yep. um like world of goo mm-hmm. um, world of goo i would say is that later or is i that... would say that is one, one striation okay. kind of beyond i thought okay so when i said that i was like wait no that was like one step later yeah yeah um but... i associate world of goo with castle crashers and like Brave and stuff. Brave, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. 2008. That right. was the big watershed year right, for exactly. indie games. Aquaria, Gish, Everyday Shooter. Right. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is a, the 
the creator Jessica Mack. Right. Yep. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, that was all. Though all those games were like right before indie games blew up. Right. But that's they, like the wave is like you know. Right. But, but they they totally grow. were the thing that I think started to express that critical mass of people. You know, saying like, oh, there's this interesting stuff. You know, Gish is really interesting. Everyday Shooter is really interesting. Like, Aquaria is really beautiful. And like, you know, people are talking about it. And then it was, it was what was leading to what would be the, the kind of lightning the in a bottle. You mainstream know, indie yeah. hits. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like there was a technology and console generation aspect to that where like 2008 was because. Castle Crashers and Braid and what Meat Boy? Did Super Meat Boy come out in two thousand eight? I think it came. Or was it like two thousand nine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like those are all like Xbox Live Arcade. World of Goo games. was we. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think that was the big console that it came out on. Yeah, but it felt like that was the first time that pe- that that you know like high production value indie games were like we're going to be digital console releases and all these stuff, you know, the aquarium and, and the, uh, parallel titles at that time were PC downloads. Yeah. And it felt, it feels like there's something about that just like platform shift that was involved right. too. I think with people being able to access it and almost some kind of like cache kind of thing too. Yeah, no, know, for well. sure. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there was definitely this feeling of legitimacy. Right. Once games could get on, xbox or wii or yeah. playstation and yeah i think i think with the the aquaria generation of games it was like oh, okay these are these are like big fleshed out complete games made by very small teams right and so you have that feeling that well i can really feel that there is a small team behind this but the game the games are you know they're complete and they're pretty polished yeah right and yeah. The, you know these are some fairly un- unique ideas but these don't feel like little freeware games that you just yeah that you get just like off play some, on new grounds or something yeah or yeah. get off game hippo or something like that and then god i love i love web- website names from the mid 2000s yeah. thank christ <laughs> yeah game hippo is a big one i visited that all the time mm. home of the underdogs yeah Home of the Underdogs is fantastic. Such because, a cool site. Yeah, you would just find these weird old, yeah, games. It was like yeah. freeware, weird indie games mixed with abandonware. Right. It was just like, that's like the perfect mix for me. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I did a lot of um, kind of like, you know, self-education through the abandonware on that site. Yeah. Where it's just like, no one owns the rights to this anymore. Here's the download for this, like... DOS game that's already wrapped in a DOS box executable that you can actually experience and it's right. like super interesting for XYZ reason um, it, you know it felt like at that time because because I, I, I took um, a good number of film courses in school and so like preservation of film is much much more robust than sure. game preservation is now and certainly was then but I had that feeling of being able to be like oh this is my way to access these games that have been lost to time Otherwise, the way that I'm going back and I'm watching films from the 30s or, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So resources like that um, were really, really kind of influential to me at the time. They felt valuable. 
Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, but, right, what were we talking... Yeah, yeah, so the, that 2008, that big year. Yeah, just the... Yeah, Aquaria, I, I assume, was, like, a good success for you guys at the it scale was. you're working at and, and kind of in that field, but it was kind of a precursor to... Yeah. To, to what, to, you know, and to what would then be, like, Spelunky HD and everything in the kind of next step after the 2008... It did. The funny thing is, so I felt but, like... With Spelunky, we were a little late. You know, with Aquaria, we were a little bit early. And yeah. then with Spelunky, by the time we released on XBLA, it yeah. wasn't the big gold mine that everyone was thought it was. But I feel like it still did okay. <laughs> it did great. <laughs> no, it did great. So I'm not... I'm not don't yeah. feel like I'm complaining right. and talking <laughs> but, sour grapes. But, but but it wasn't right in the middle of the zeitgeist. It wasn't like in that moment. Yeah. That, yeah. I'm talking more about at the time of release or when we were wrapping up development, it felt like, whereas when we were first getting on XBLA, it was like, ooh, you're going to be on the same platform as Braid and Castle Crashers and Super yeah. Meat Boy. And then by the time we released, it felt more like oh you know people are leaving xbla now because right. they're they're unhappy with the way the way things were going well that. and you spelunky on xbox was was that 2012 yeah okay so you were post like limbo and bastion and stuff right i think those yes. were 2011 games yeah. so yeah you were kind of so so spelunky on on xbla was kind of late stage for that for that kind of distinctive generation. Of, and it of didn't do exceedingly well on Xbox when it released also. Oh, really? Which I, I think kind of drove that feeling home, oh, right? okay. Okay. It, it, did, it did fine, but the expectations were totally just right. so high right. at that point. And everyone was was saying, oh, Spelunky's going to be kind of the, the next just huge hit on, yeah. on XBLA. And it did fine. Yeah. It did fine. And, you know, I think expectations aside, we should have been totally happy right. with it. Right. Well, let's talk about how you got to Spelunky on on, on console. Sure. So I know, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know that um, Spelunky was originally a, a freeware PC title with yeah. a totally different art style. And that, it, and that that was one of those titles that... Um, really epitomized that moment in the TIG Source community. You know, that it was sort of like, oh yeah, the original Spelunky was one of those games that like the whole TIG Source community knew about and that people were excited about if you knew about what was going on there. And it turned into this thing that now everybody's like, oh, Spelunky, right? Um, so so what, was, what was the transition like for you going from Aquaria, which was a, a you know, polished team game with like hand you know digitally hand-painted art and all this kind of stuff to doing the original version of Splunky, which as far as i know is a totally solo game and it was like a, a pixel art game and i don't know how what brought you to that after aquaria i was just really burnt out again after aquaria it was such an intense development i mean oh, such yeah. a for me and alec it was our first commercial project and we had to learn so much about how to make a commercial game and thankfully we had experience making games and finishing them before but this nothing at this scale even eternal daughter which was 
also just a very tiring game to make, but this was really on, on another level. And I think especially just, you know, submitting the game to IGF and having more... Oh, right, because Aquaria, speaking of, of GDC and the IGF, Aquaria won, like, the, the Seamus prize yeah. the year it came, or the year that you entered it, it right? It did. Which was, you were saying, that was, like, what, 2005 or six, seven? That, Somewhere in there. I right? think, was 2000. And seven. Okay. I think that was 2007. Yeah. We released the game December 2007. Yeah. So what was that experience like, like having that kind of recognition? Were you like very familiar with GDC and stuff before that, that point or? No, not yeah. really. Yeah. I don't think, I feel like the IGF, it wasn't super high on people's radar. I don't even mm. really remember reading about it on the Tick Source uh, blog before yeah. I took over. I feel like IGF's prominence kind of came along with the 2008 wave and along with Fez and along, you know, the kind of stuff that followed that. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like the visibility to a wider audience. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And again, I think it was, it was kind of on its way up in 2007 yeah. when, when we submitted, it was, it was so super exciting. Yeah. I mean, like, I think now it's even flashier and stuff than it was back then. But back then it was still huge. And, yeah. And yeah, like Shigeru Miyamoto was there in the audience and that was crazy. And, I, you know, I'm looking around and I'm, I'm seeing people like Miyamoto and I think maybe Cliff Blazinski and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And, in his bunny suit. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. Um, and I just remember walking up with my with my family and my my girlfriend at the time now my wife yeah and you get you know you get to the part where all the the nominees and stuff people are making speeches are, are gonna sit and you yeah. know they they like let you in someone <laughs> lets pulls aside the the rope to let you in it just felt so crazy yeah but it's very I mean, and yeah, we won. We we lost. We were nominated for a bunch of awards. I think like four or something. And yeah. we, we lost all except the the final grand prizes, yeah. which was very exciting, very cool. But just the whole submission process and having this kind of spotlight on you was very emotionally draining and, yeah. and tiring. And sure. on top of having to finish the game, it, it raised expectations for us. Right. And you have all these, these hopes and, and <laughs> about winning and, and then the game doing well after that. Yeah. You know, is this, okay, we, we won this great award and that's huge, but yeah. now we actually have to sell the game. <laughs> is, are people going to buy it? You, know, you still have those same, yeah. Yeah. same worries. And it was just an order of magnitude more taxing than eternal daughter yeah right to do all of that and yeah just just getting to know alec on in such a you know i mean you know this working with people the people you work with they're the people you spend the most time with yeah really i mean at that time i was you know there are points where alec and i would would stay at my parents place and work on the game and i was seeing him every waking hour right right and yeah. we had like tons of fun but it's obviously very stressful and and there's tensions and stuff yeah. when you're well, trying I'm, to decide 
what to do. Yeah, when you don't have time or space to get away from each other. Yeah. And, like, you know, just, like, get some, some breather and then come back to whatever the exactly. thing is. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, even working with John, we never lived together right. and worked on games 24-7 for weeks on end. Right. right, right. And we did other things in between. We'd just hang out and yeah and goof off more and stuff like that and so yeah it was it was difficult i think just learning how to be a team like that right also well because yeah i mean it's there's something that's good about the 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 fluidity of kind of just like being able to you know like address things as they come up, not having to be as intentional about like, oh, we need to like, what, like have a meeting about this or schedule mm-hmm. a call about it or something. Right? But on the flip side is that balance of if it's all that's ever happening, you know, then, then that has its own drawbacks. I like when we made gone home, the three of us who started the company, we just rented a house together. So like, you know, we were living and working together, but also the upside is we were all like over 30 so we like weren't it was like you know the real world there's something on it it wasn't yeah. a lot of drama and we did like go off and do our own things when we weren't working but like that no matter what i think that's like not a sustainable no no matter whether you have a, a good balance within that it's not like a long-term sustainable thing right. just because of all the social pressures that it puts on on you to kind of always be on in some sense I mean, in my early 20s, and Alec, too, at that time, you know, I don't even really understand myself, right? Um, I don't understand, like, why I do things the way I do. I haven't thought about it. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not thinking about how these things affect, are affecting Alec, you know, and we we had to sort through that. I think, and one of the basic things, I think, is just for me, I, I... like we would we would talk about something we would have a, a meeting basically to talk about some uh design thing yeah. or just what we're going to do really we're just planning what we're going to do and then we we go through a, a a long discussion about how we're going to do this okay you, you're going to do this i'm going to do this and then i think for me my inclination was then to basically just go off to a corner by myself you know, a metaphorical corner and then just go work on my thing kind of quietly. Yeah. And I think for Alec, I, he, there were a lot of times where I would go, just go do that. Like, and be, like I said, I, I didn't understand myself yeah. in the sense that it wasn't a conscious thing. It's just like, Oh, okay. I'm just going to go off and just work on my part. Yeah. And I think there were times where, where for Alec, he felt like, you know, he's not getting communication from me. Right. Yeah. I'm just, off doing my thing and he's wondering whether we're actually working together yeah and i think there are several times where that that happened i just was not conscious of like what you know why doesn't alec think i'm i'm working right kind of thing you know or we just yeah i don't know we just had to figure that kind of stuff out as we went yeah and there are times where we actually brought um other people I guess there was, there was just one time where Alec brought a friend of his on to help us manage the project. He was yeah. going to be the project. Kind uh, of like a producer role. Producer, right, manager. And he came on and, and I think the point was to help facilitate communication with Alec and I and let us work 
right? Like what a producer yeah. is supposed to do. Yeah. And yeah, his, his, st- st- he, what ended up happening is he introduced a whole nother style of working. Right. That didn't gel with either me or Alec, <laughs> where he would write a lot of design like documents and type stuff. stuff sure. Yeah. Which I think in some teams is exactly what you need. But for me and Alec, I think we both did like more of a sort of organic kind of process sure. where we we just get on chat and and talk. Right, right. And so all of a sudden there just there's design document after design document and then now we've got to kind of sort through that. And that was just another complication and we ended up having to tell him like, you know, I don't think this is working out, yeah. but you know, all that stuff and then you got to make a game right too yeah that's the whole point <laughs> and so it by the end i think for me i just really felt like i needed to go back to my place of peace which was just like the click and play days yeah. where i'm just sitting with click and play and i'm just making making games on my own again yeah kind of doing away with all of that right making freeware right yeah so Doing away with the expectations, doing away with the sort of project management and, and team communication kind of stuff. And yeah, so that's that's how I got to do Spelunky again. And I learned Game Maker, very similar to Click and Play. Yeah. Had kind of its own community just like Click and Play did. And I was very inspired by people like Cactus, yeah. people like Matt Thorson, um, people like Mark Essen. Yeah. These are big game maker people back in the day. These were like the, you know, when you talk about game maker, these were sort of the stars. Right. And, and you can look at, at those people who have also gone on to do very noteworthy stuff, like Cactus made Hotline Miami. Yeah. And uh, was Niflis part of that? I think so. Because I think of, um, God, what, what was Knit, his? right? And, yeah, uh, Knit, yeah. Uh, there's another one. I think it's called Within a Deep Forest. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm not sure yeah. that's exactly Yeah, but, but I think of Knit as being yeah. part of that whole yeah, that too. scene, too. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I was very inspired by them. It, The whole Game Maker thing made me very nostalgic for the click-and-play days. Yeah. And so, yeah, I picked up Game Maker, did the freeware version of Spelunky. Took a few, like, I don't know, half a dozen prototypes before I kind of arrived on that idea. So you didn't you didn't start from a super clear point of, like... Because Spelunky, I think, you know, very uh, openly is based on a classic, what, Atari or NES game, Spelunker, right? Or is it like an arcade game? Um, yeah, it was inspired, inspired by a by, lot of things, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, there was a... I'm not going to be able to remember the exact name. It's I, I put it in my Spelunky book, right. but there's this... Japanese game for like the sharp okay uh, I don't know x80,000 or something some Japanese PC and I never even played the game but I read an article about it on hardcore gaming 101 yeah and which it, hardcore gaming 101 is like a great site and they're still they're still writing articles yeah. about obscure crazy old games yeah right it's kind of like home of the underdogs where you just go and just yeah. like, learn about all these old yeah. obscure pc games yeah. that you've never heard of but actually i went on their on their podcast like a year or something ago because i just like 
one day I was just reading the site and I just tweeted at them like, hey, I really appreciate the site being around. Like, you should come on our podcast. <laughs> it's really oh, nice. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they're like, they're good dudes and they're just like passionate about, about bringing visibility to these, all, you know, all these hundreds of games that you're not going to get a chance to play. Yeah. But that, you know, you can learn about in a cool way. Yeah. And I feel like I get a lot of inspiration just from these little snippets. Yeah. Of of games that I, I don't even always play, just read about, it and it's like, oh, that's really cool. And I, yeah. I remember the article about that game, just describing about how you can dig a path through the levels. Yeah. And it was more of a it was a sci-fi game where you're just shooting little robots, and but d- yeah, the description of how you can dig through the levels and just you can create ambushes and things like that, and really just decide your your way through the game in this in this manner um, was very inspiring to me. I think I also read a an article that Anna Anthropy wrote about. I believe the game is called Battle City. It's a tank okay. game, top down tank game. Mm. At least one version came out on the NES, I think, okay. where you have these tanks and you can shoot the walls that are. It's like a grid based. Um, the, the map is on a, on a grid. Okay. It's an old game and there are these walls in the way and with your tanks, you can destroy the walls and make paths that way. Yeah. So I, from various things like that, I, I really had the idea of destructible terrain, like being a very cool thing in my right. head that I wanted to play with. Yeah. And then from there it was really just, yeah, I mean, platformers, everyone knows, loves, I made Eternal Daughter and had experienced making them with that and yeah. then roguelikes which i had always enjoyed as a kid i i was really into hack right another opportunity my, my parents gave me is they had hack on a floppy disk oh when wow I was a kid <laughs> they had all these just random pc games on floppy disks yeah and one of them was hack so i played that a, a, quite a bit when i was a kid yeah you, you just like was it just one of those things where you just tried a game? You just like, I guess this is on a disc, and you just tried it? Yeah, I just got I'd pop in the it. discs, and I would just look for the games. They weren't all games. So I would just like type in the name. Is right. it a game? Oh, cool. I'm yeah, going to play it. Yeah. You know? Sometimes instead it's like a spreadsheet software or something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, hack.exe sounded really cool. Yeah. Very different from what I thought it was going to be, which is like some kind of computer hacking game. Right. And, um, yeah, so, that, yeah, I was, had hack. In the back of my mind, Dwarf Fortress, I was covering that a lot on TIG Source. Yeah, right. As being this just really cool simulation, like yeah. the most advanced game anyone's ever made, yeah. basically. The most intense simulation yep. of an entire universe. Yeah, <laughs> and so that was yeah. in my head, too. I had all these things in my yeah in my head, and they, they all contributed to Spelunky. Yeah. So, how did you focus that into what the design of the original PC Splunky ended up being? Like, how do you synthesize those things and realize, like, here's what form that's going to take? I think the main thing was the level generation in the beginning. You know, I, I want to make a platform with randomized levels. How do you gen- how am I going to generate the levels? And, it, you know, I came upon that sort of room-based generation system where, yeah, right, you have a grid and then you kind of, like, carve a path through the grid. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, you know, a grid of rooms. So yeah. 
I very quickly was like, I'm not going to do any kind of algorithm really that carves a path through. Yeah. I'm just going to have these templated rooms and connect them together. And right? then there's going to be basically a system to determine that there's some kind of legitimate path from the beginning yeah. to the end. Yeah, you have these templated rooms so you can, and the rooms basically only connect left to right or up or down. Yeah. And so it makes it pretty easy to make a path right. through. And then you can always ensure that the player is going to be able to get through because you, the rooms are hand designed. Yeah. They're yeah. just a few, you throw a few random tiles into the room, but the you can basically always ensure that right. you can get through and then and then above and beyond that you're making a game that's about destructible terrain so if you get into a weird spot you can blow a hole in the yeah, floor exactly know, yeah. and then the design really just it just flowed from there it's just yeah. like oh well yeah what else would be cool i drew from all these different sources you know nethack has these shops it's really fun to rob the shops and you can do all these different things right let's do that in spelunky well, how do you do that in spelunky it's Seems pretty obvious once you have that basic level generation system in place, you know. But it's going to also... take up one of the rooms, and there's, you know, just put, you put the right. items on the floor. And... Yeah, but it also takes the, the, it's necessary to have the, to have built the point of reference. To be like, yeah. like, NetHack had shops and they were cool to steal from. Yeah. Like, you have to have that thought in the first place, you know, and, and that's, that's an interesting aspect of knowing what, like you said, you had your form. You had your, like, there's going to be rooms that are randomly arranged and you're going to try to get from the entrance to the exit. And then, now that you have your template, you know, you have the, the, the kind of constraints and you can say, okay, well, okay, how does this influence take shape within that? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic infrastructure was just solid. It's just lucky. This is like just, it's a solid infrastructure where if you have a new idea, it it's either going to fit or it's not. Right, right. Whereas with Aquaria, we started with this prototype that was cool, but it could go in so many different directions. And that was a, the other thing that made it a very intense development is okay. just, okay, cool, you know, I like the feel of moving this mermaid around, but what kind of game is this going to be? Is it going to be like a JRPG? Is it going to be a more of a Metroidvania? Yeah. You know, what are we going to do with it? It started off being more like a JRPG where we had towns and there were cutscenes. Oh, wow. With all kinds of characters and stuff in it. And then we, yeah, sort of shaved all of that off and yeah. it became more of a Metroidvania. Right. But there were just so many more different directions where this seemed like it could work. And this also seemed like it could work. Right. Whereas with Spelunky, this is either... All, going to work this way or just you know it's not at all yeah well i feel like that's something that ended up also being a a, a guiding principle for you which was it felt it felt to me like and i don't have very much experience at all with the with the freeware version i mostly only played the the you know the commercial uh remake of it but i was always struck by how it felt like it felt like there was this this kind of requirement that everything has to have some level of like procedural aspect to it like to 
you know, to a point, but like, you know, even the, the intro text is pulled from like a procedural set of options that, that gets rolled every time you start a new game. And just, it seems like that must've been valuable for you to be like, I can't put this in. That's way, way too hard coded. It has this be part of the, the procedural nature of this thing. Yeah. I think the tricky part is just balancing how much is handmade versus procedural. Right. And I got a pretty good feel for it working on Spelunky. I think just from that, that beginning it, it, yeah, it, it made sense. Um, what what I should do by hand and what shouldn't. Because the, the whole level generation system, I think, set the tone for right. how much should be handmade and how much right. shouldn't be. And by the way, if people want, if you're listening to this and you want um, more detail on like how the level generation system works and stuff, um, Derek uh, did write and publish a book through Boss Fight Books that's just called Spelunky. And it's a, it's all about the design philosophy and what led to Splunky and then some of the, the ins and outs of, so there's like a graph that shows how this works in a, in a very concrete way, which is cool to see if you want to kind of dig into that. Yeah. And if you look up Darius Kazemi and Spelunky, he also did a really nice guide for the freeware version okay. that explains the level generation and actually has visuals where you can just build a level in your web page, oh, cool. kind of hit generate and see how it works. And it, it labels everything as being oh there's a room on the path and this is kind of a side room and things like that because that's how i broke down the the rooms the yeah. whole room thing is like this is a room that doesn't even need to connect to the path like you may need to have to use bombs to get in there and things yeah. like that but i think also um the other thing is that spelunky and i think the challenge that alec and i had with aquaria also just really informed my process for making games in that I experienced how challenging Aquaria was going into it with so many unknowns. And then I also experienced how relatively easy Spelunky was, I think going in with a strong, infrastructure and a lot of things kind of understood i mean with the freeware version i was still playing around but the freeware version in and of itself was the was a blueprint for the commercial version right so you know i really realized that oh yeah with freeware that's a great place to play around yeah by its nature you're not going to feel pressured to make something at a large scale right Make so something you, saleable yeah, in a commercial. Yeah. Exactly. And but then you can see the idea from beginning to end and you can still get people's feedback, right? And yeah. this is something I learned in click and play also. Yeah. You know, make a little freeware game, put it out, get feedback. I think the missing piece was just, oh, well after that, if people really like it, you can make that into a commercial game. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can spend more time on it, but you've got this blueprint. And so Going into the Xbox version of Spelunky, there are just so many more known quantities as yeah. far as the game, the whole game development compared to Aquaria where we were learning so much at once. Yeah. yeah. And so that's become a really 
big deal for me. It's not just, oh, do I want to make this game? Is this game going to do well, do I think? You know, is this the kind of thing that people might be interested in? Yeah. But it's also, is this a game that's going to have a process that I can work with, you know? Yeah. Like, can I, how many, how many things do I understand pretty well about this game before I even start working on it? Yeah. And it's just become really important for me that I do understand a lot because you always underestimate how much you're going to have to learn. Yeah. When you when you make a game and so knowing as much as possible maybe even feeling like you kind of understand the whole game and not just the design but like how you're gonna make it yeah is it's just become so important for me because yeah. I I don't want to spend I don't really want to spend more than like three years tops on a game right I just don't I just feel like that for me has been a good amount of time yeah for projects and I, I see people who have game projects that are taking like five plus years or more and i just i can't see myself yeah doing that and just kind of maintaining my my kind of focus and enthusiasm for that long yeah know? i mean even three years is a long time three years Which, is already a long time yeah and I, I say that as someone our last game took three years to make so it's not like yeah i i, I also feel like it's sort of on the the top end of what i would want to spend on a single project but i also didn't think that I even wanted to make a game that took three years to make. Or yeah. It wasn't on purpose. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you should knows, plan for like a year and a half. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it feels like the project can be done in a year and a half or something like that, or like yeah. a year. Yeah. Then you're, you're maybe in a, a good spot. Yeah. You might end up having it take three years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I feel like another thing about Splunky that is really important is the, the idea of really deep, really obscure secrets, which I feel like also come from hack. But how much of that was in the original version versus how much of like, you know, the 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 super the obscure method of getting into the hell level or into getting into the the UFO or the um the worm or whatever uh was added during the the H D version that wasn't in was the original version a much like more stripped down idea of the concept or, or had you built a bunch of like crazy hard to find secrets and because the thing that's the thing that's amazing to me about Splunky is the whole idea of like it's hard to even beat Olmec but then there's this whole other world you know that you have to do stuff there's almost no signposting for except you know for the community to find it and everything that's in there plus all these other ones that you know are and and did, was that something that from the beginning you felt like that was important to the the concept or was that something kind of layered on as you made a new version? So the freeware version started on the TIG source forums and the first version I released was in a private part of the TIG source forums. So you could only access if you had a certain number of posts or if you were a moderator or something like that. Okay. It was just really just a place for fun to give people something to look forward to if they had like 10,000 posts. <laughs> right. And so I thought that'd be a good place to just post this very, the first version was I think pretty stripped down compared to what it ended up being. Yeah. The final version of the freeware uh, version of the game had the city of gold and had a lot of very deep secrets. Okay. But the very first, I guess, beta version that it put out in the private forums was pretty stripped. Yeah. And, I kept developing it 
people would give me feedback and then I'd put out a new version and add a couple more secrets. And that just continued just for, I don't know, like half a year or something like that. Yeah. And so it got progressively more and more deep, sort of just based on how far people on the TickSource forums were getting and what they were discovering. So it's yeah. like, oh, you discovered this. Well, I'll just add another little thing. Right. And right. so it, it, the secrets developed like that. But by the end, the version 1.0 of the freeware version was, uh, yeah, pretty, had a lot of secrets in it. And yeah. then with the Xbox Spelunky, well, it just felt like we had to add another layer on top of that. Right. So it was a very natural extension of, let's just, we'll just keep adding secrets, you know, continuously all the way through the eventual Xbox release, yeah. which had hell. When you were, um, when you were doing that on the take source forums, like what was your relationship to exposing that to players? Like, did you just like now the onk exists, but you like didn't even put it in the patch notes or anything Did people have to totally discover it? Or did you try to point people at what the new secrets that you put in were or what? Basically in the patch notes, I would say there is now, and then I would redact what it actually was, <laughs> which made it totally useless because looking at the patch notes now, I'm actually curious. Oh, when did I add this and this? And I can't even remember. <laughs> you needed internal patch notes. Yeah, it would just say, oh, added secret. Right. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So I actually don't remember when all these yeah. things were added. But but it was the kind of thing where the all that your kind of like testing community or fan community knew was that there was something secret new that yep. was added to it. And they had to just find what that was through their own exploration. Yeah. From... All my previous games, even in click and play, I realized that people are so good at finding secrets, and especially with the internet, you can share a secret once you've found it. Right. So you really can't bury anything too deep. Right. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. yeah. And so I never really worried. Oh, is no one going to find this? I put all this work into it. No one's going to find it. <laughs> I, I, I'm never really concerned about that. It's right. just. If anything, I'm trying to think about how deeply I can bury this so that no one can find it. I don't want <laughs> people to find these things, and they always end up finding it anyway. Sometimes it takes them, like, five years or whatever. That like, would be the ideal. If there's something... Well, that was kind of what it was with, like, the eggplant, eggplant run, right? Yeah. That was, like, three or four years after it's it true. came out. Yeah, it, it so that's, me... like, the ideal secret. Yeah, yeah, um, which we'll get to and everything. But what... Um... You know, as a, as a, like, as a, you know, business or commercial endeavor, as well as just like the actual design and creative impulse, what was the thing that made you say like, okay, Spelunky is this thing that I want to like do new art for. And I know you worked with Andy Hull, who was another programmer to like. And also someone I knew from the click and play community. Oh, really? Yeah. He's uh, Astro Spoon in the click and play community. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But like to, to, to turn this into a commercial console product and expand it and all that kind of stuff. That was all because John Blow emailed and we, it was a, he emailed me about a bug in the game <laughs> that I, I never ended up fixing, but. <laughs> <laughs> but on top of that, you never ended up fixing it. Yeah, but he, he was the one who first suggested putting it on Xbox because he had contacts. Yeah. Did he like introduce you to yes, people there and stuff? Wow. Yeah. His producer. Awesome. Kevin Hathaway at, at Xbox. He introduced me to Kevin. Yeah. That's, it's only because of that. Yeah. No, that's so interesting. I mean, John also 
when when we were making Gone Home, our like like our our like very first playtest that we sent out to a playtest group, uh, we sent it out, and he was the very first person that sent us feedback on it. Like we sent it, basically what we sent it to 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 a group, and then my wife and I were going on like our like wedding anniversary trip. We just took a road trip somewhere, so we drove like four hours to somewhere. And then when we got there, I checked my email, and he had written, <laughs> written feedback. And it was, like, very encouraging. And we were like, oh, well, maybe we have something here. So, yeah, I, I, it's it's cool. That yeah, he can be a that. very harsh critic. But within that era, I felt like he was very engaged with trying to, like, push things to get made. And, He's also, and yeah, very stuff. encouraging. And, and you can tell really wants to help people. I think, you know, who he feels. Like, whose games he likes. Yeah, to, for, to for sure. Succeed and for sure. Like that. So, so basically, okay, another aside, just, I think I might have told this story on Tone Control before, but I'm friends with, um, Brendan Chung, who you might know. Yeah. Yeah, I made 30 sure. Flights and, yep. and Quattro Cowboy and everything. So the way that we first got in touch was I downloaded Flotilla and oh, played yeah. it. And then I emailed him because I was playing it on a netbook. And when I would look at like the planet in the background, the frame rate would go down to like three frames a second. And so I just emailed him. I was like, hey, I don't know if there's something you could do so I can run this on my netbook. And like an hour later, he emailed me back. He was like, okay, there's a patch available now where you can turn off the planet. And I was like, what? Okay, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we've been you know, friends for three years for the same thing. I the moral of the story, email your developers about, <laughs> about bugs. bugs in their games. <laughs> So, okay, so... Honestly, I think that actually is good advice because if you just cold call, cold email a developer saying like, hey, you want to, you know, check out my game or can we get coffee? I think sometimes that can be hard, but if you tell them, if you email and tell them, oh, there's a bug in your game, <laughs> you're maybe more likely to, to... There's an action item. Though. Yeah, there's an action item. It goes up a little higher on a busy developer's priority list, maybe. But so okay, so so you were in contact with with Jonathan Blow after after that point you got intros with Xbox and, and all that kind of stuff. So like I don't know what made you actually wanna like take the jump. I mean you had the encouragement that was like someone saying, I think this game is good enough to turn into a a, a you know, commercial thing. Yeah, John's encouragement right. also, which is uh, yeah means a lot. Yeah. And so what were at that point? You're just like, well, I guess we're I guess we're doing this thing. Like, was it a hard decision, or were you pretty into it? You were just sort of like, yeah, I do think that this could be something we could flesh out. It it didn't feel it didn't feel like a hard decision. I don't think. I mean, it was a you know it, it was, was a lot to bite off. It was a lot of work, right? Right. That you were signing up for. Yeah, I think, I think I knew it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up, but I just, I did maybe need to take a couple days just to like get over my anxiety about what was happening. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I probably talked to my wife and asked her if she thought I should, I should do it or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, no, other than that, yeah. it's just go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it seems like kind of like what you're saying with the, with your early click and play stuff too. It's like you had had this community of people who were like, playing the builds and finding the secrets and kind of showing that people could connect with it as well. Right. So it kind of must've shown that you're like, Oh, well this, this can have an audience if it's, you know, if I, if I bring it to a new platform. Yeah. Stuff. And I'd made the jump with Alec to actually work on Aquaria and make that a, 
a full-time thing and so this is you know it was another jump yeah to make yeah and have you only ever been has your only job ever been just making your own games i did freelance illustration concept art before aquaria and even into aquaria okay yeah which by the way that's like another thing worth mentioning is like you're just a really great illustrator and digital painter on top of like my first love so i I spent a lot of time but you have like a really distinctive style and your stuff is just like you know like very well executed and crafted like you're just like a a great artist on top of making games and everything which is which is kind Uh, of incredible (laughs) and you have a you have a a tumblr that i don't think you really engage with that much anymore but that uh i always have appreciated because you find these sometimes obscure sometimes less obscure just like you find like painted promotional art and concept art from old games that very much fit and i think give me a an even better understanding of what your aesthetic sensibilities are yeah totally it's reflected in your work but like Splunky is much more cute than some of the stuff that you post, but you can see the kind of like gonzo-ness, but with a high level of craft that this stuff that, that you kind of have curated. Yeah. And it just, it, it feels, it feels like it gives me a little bit more insight and it totally makes sense with, you know, what you've, you've done to see these pieces that you right. kind of pull out of. Yeah. That Tumblr Abobobo has gotten kind of replaced by Twitter. Yeah. Where on Twitter, I I reserve my likes mostly for artwork okay. so that I can just go to my likes and then it's like a, a Tumblr there. Right, yeah. And then also there are just Tumblrs now that are doing a lot of what I wanted to do yeah. with a Bobo Bo, but they just, they're putting more time into it. Like VG Densetsu is an awesome mm. Tumblr. Okay. And it does a lot of that. Yeah, promotional art and concept art from arcade especially old Japanese arcade games and things like that yeah and i think they're trying to yeah really curate kind of a museum for uh they focus on yeah japanese artists and stuff like that yeah which is kind of what i was trying to do with the bobo but i I do have western art and things like that on there yeah Um, but but it's a lot more common it feels like for it to be the promo art from yeah like 80s and 90s arcade games and console games yeah and i think i tend to i do tend to gravitate more towards those old japanese concept artists and illustrators and stuff. I just, I really like that aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of it, I think at the time, I mean, especially in the eighties, probably all of it is actual, like physical, like paint, like acrylics and and airbrush and like, you know, like physical illustration. Texture. Yeah. So whether it's the texture of the medium, like you're saying, watercolor acrylics, or just the feeling of the kind of texture of a scene, like the details in a scene and a lot of those old concept arts and stuff like that had had that i like also yeah. exaggeration yeah you know I, that kind of super deformed style that was popular yeah. in old arcade illustrations and the games themselves yeah right and i think you can kind of see that in spelunky right you know the characters have big heads yeah and even though it's a modern game like i still like the look of the tile-based levels and yeah. things like that where i don't know just and pixel art too right is pixel art is on a this grid also yeah and i just 
I feel like I just really like the the look and aesthetic and feel of having these tiny discrete elements that interact with each other. Yeah. Kind of all in one place. Right, because they, I mean, it's a hierarchy. They're like they're they're all speaking through kind of the same language. Yeah. You know, it's it's why when like for instance, what the there was like the the like Chrono Trigger re-release or something yeah. recently where like they had pixel art but like high res like ttf fonts and it's yeah. like those aren't speaking the same nope. like visual language like that unification of everything kind of coming through the same form is really important yeah and people using that bilinear filtering or whatever on pixel art to make it look more modern i just i don't like that because <laughs> yeah. i like seeing the interaction of the pixels and what they mean to each other yeah. that's what i like about games also it's it's kind of where the name moss mouth comes from it's not really the mouth part so much but moss you know, it, moss adds texture. It's very, you know, when you look at it up close, it's all these tiny little sort of plants together almost. Yeah. Or like, and it fills cracks, right? Yeah. Like you look in a nook or a crack and there's some moss growing in it. And that really captures what I like about about games and, and artwork too. Yeah. Right? Like games in a way are these little terrariums right there are these self-contained little uh worlds that have their own little nooks and crannies in them and yeah. I, yeah i always love that i mean i think if you kind of look at like a zelda one map from up above it, it sort of looks like moss growing on <laughs> on a log or something right? yeah like sure. there are all these just little uh green sort of hills and trees just kind of dotting this landscape and yeah. i just love that feeling yeah it feels like it's it actually feels like it's kind of like growing on a surface in yeah. like an organic way yeah exactly yeah. yeah so you were working on the 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 xbox version of that for a while like was that was that like a was that like a few years that you were working on the the xbox version? yeah okay and you and again. you said that um it, it did fine, but it wasn't like a breakout, like a, a whatever, like a Meat Boy braid limbo, like hit. Yeah. And, and so, but I feel like it eventually was. Yeah. And especially so when it came on PC. And right. And that seems like a really interesting arc because my impression at the time was that Spunky was, was really well received and was one of like the hit games of the year. But it does feel like when you added in like the daily challenge and when you put it on more platforms that it really did kind of snowball. But that was over a pretty extended period of time. Like not yeah. like super, not like massively extended, but it was kind of in stages, right? Right. Yeah, I think it was about a year between the Xbox and PC version. And then did you add in the daily challenges after again after that point? Was yeah. that like, that was for like the Vita version or something? No, right? P- it it came out on the PC version too. Okay. Yeah. Well, I it mean, was not an Xbox version. Right. But I guess I mean it was like there's Xbox and then there was the PC version, which was basically just the Xbox version on PC, mm-hmm. and then later daily challenges were added in. Right. Or or were daily challenges with the initial PC release? I didn't think they were. I. In my memory, and honestly, even even though yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't get any closer to it, but I I I have this impression that it released with okay okay the daily challenge okay, but it was still that was still like a thing that yeah like you were saying it was like a year yeah after so that's 
So that's 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 pretty interesting because in a lot of ways it really makes it feel like it was kind of more like the development of the game was like four years in a way because it was like the version that ended up being the thing that really snowballed was like took more work and more time after yeah. that initial three year release. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it definitely helped for the game to come out on Xbox. Yeah. And it, it built I mean, up I an audience, it on Xbox. and yeah, yeah. a lot of the streamers, all of the streamers that we ended up contacting to help us promote the daily challenge before the release, uh, found out about it on Xbox. Right. And I think people were excited about it coming out on PC because of the Xbox and having to wait a little bit for right. it. Right. Yeah. Totally builds up uh, a built-in audience that was waiting for yeah. it on the new platform. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, I mean, and and the thing is that that game, I feel like, more than a lot of them, relies on this really deep but also broad engagement of the audience to to be finding all the secrets and finding the optimal ways to 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 do speed runs or to get the maximum gold or to you know otherwise just sort of like mine, I mean, in a, no pun intended, like mine, <laughs> like all of everything. Because the thing is, you made this this game that, um, it, it, it's a weird comparison, but it makes me think of like PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, where it's a game that's about a hundred people in every match. So you're making a game where it's like, if there's not thousands and thousands and thousands of people always playing it, you're not going to be able to find matches. Yeah, you know, it's like right. this game that's based on we better have a really big, constant audience. And it feels like Spelunky is this game that you you built so much depth into the design and so much, um, uh, you know, variety, you know, like, like deviation between any single playthrough into the design that, like, it requires there just being people throwing themselves at it and learning about it and, and finding more and more about it all the time for the kind of potential of of the design itself to to come across in the end yeah and it's interesting because i feel like there's so much pressure now for every game that comes out to be like that a game where people can play it forever yeah right which is i don't know it's challenging yeah right because sometimes you just want to make like a tell a story and you're telling me that's it yeah exactly <laughs> there's this pressure to make make it if you're an indie developer add roguelike elements so people can play it forever yeah. or and, for and multiplayer, the big companies yeah. to make it a battle royale multiplayer <laughs> game right that yeah. people can just keep keep playing and and make it streamable yeah you know and things like that and so yeah for spelunky it's just yeah i, I wasn't thinking about that when i was working on the first version obviously i mean yeah. it just that wasn't something that people were thinking about and then yeah just it was it was lucky that that as we kept making these different versions of the game that yeah that that did end up working really well with the whole streaming culture and just where games were kind of headed yeah the daily challenge especially too. the daily challenge yeah. it was like totally about like i'm gonna take a shot at the daily challenge today and you know it had it, the thing about i think streaming is that that like tension and like risk reward is, uh, is just that that like cliffhanger question of like oh are they gonna make it today you know and when they die they're like oh 
I, that's my daily challenge for the day, right. you know, and like that that kind of thing, as opposed to just like, I guess I'll watch this person just like play some Splunky. It feels like it has a, a, something that really clicks with with what people tune in for. And that's yeah, I mean, we talked about similar ideas on Xbox. And this was before Doug Wilson and Niflis told me about their daily challenge ritual, which is what inspired the mode. Right. Is, that yeah, they were just doing it as their own thing. Yeah, they yeah. just play the game once a day on Xbox. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But we did talk about that for the Xbox version. We, I was talking with my producer. My producer wanted us to do something like that, and we just didn't have the time and energy yeah. to do it. It was harder to make something like that work on Xbox. But, like, you know, one idea we came up with was paid DLC where you would basically buy buy a, a daily run and you buy like a single run of the game and there'd be a separate leaderboard for it and stuff like that and uh, yeah I mentioned this in this Falky book but I I think I was also a little inspired by that Kojima quote where he wanted to make a game where the disc just melted when you died yep. very, very Kojima idea yeah it's like how how hardcore can you make this game? Because it does make the experience better, right? Like yeah. it does make it more engaging. The more you can lose, yeah, then the more meaningful that playthrough is, right. and the more engaged the person is going to be throughout the game. I'm honestly surprised now that you mention it. I'm surprised, and and maybe there is a game that's done this, and I don't have the visibility on it, but I'm not aware of a game where I'm surprised that we haven't looped all the way back around to arcades where there's a game that's free to download but every time you die you have to pay 25 cents to buy another life because yeah, like what like true. like what if it was just free to play Spelunky but when you eat it yeah you need to put a quarter in right and then you can take another chance and it doesn't it would it would totally increase that tension of like not just like if I die I'm going to lose my progress but if I die I'm gonna lose that money that I just <laughs> yeah exactly. But like, but that was the entire structure of how games made money in the '80s. So it's not unprecedented. I mean, you know, arcade games made money. So it's not unprecedented. But like, yeah, that that whole thing of if it was like, if you don't get chicken dinner in PUBG, you're gonna have to put another quarter in to play yeah, another totally. round. It would be wild. Like, how much more cautious would people be? Even if it's just a quarter, how much more? like cautious and tense and like conservative in a way probably would people be in every run to just it's try true. to not have to put another quarter in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow it just seems really brutal now, even though that's how it was. It does. It really does. But also I'm surprised that somebody hasn't done it. Like I could see that happening and then it just being a phenomenon because it's so yeah. unintuitive, but then people are like, I, I just, I had, I'm going I'm to give it one more shot, and this time I'm not going to die, you know? It know. feels like it would be... You'd get a lot of people that would just want to at least try it. Like, I'm going to just put it in a quarter or whatever right. and see what this is well, like. And well, then, and, I, and I feel like that... Because I feel like that was why, like, getting over it with Bennett Foddy was a huge hit this year. was because a bunch of people were like, well, fuck, I'll buy a copy. Maybe I'll be able to get over the mountain. Yeah. You know? Totally. But that's like, buy a copy and then try. Yeah. Um... It feels like that is kind of like part of the moment right now. It anyway, is true. So Nothing that, makes me want to. Give me a special thanks on that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> That'd be quite the announcement. Yeah, Spelunky <laughs> Two is is you gotta you gotta pay twenty five cents per run. 
have to come up with a catchy name for it. You've got the daily challenge and you've got this like extra spunky arcade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so, so yeah, so, well, let's talk about that though is, you know, Spelunky, you, you worked on the freeway Spelunky game before you worked on the Xbox Spelunky game and then the PC Spelunky game. And then I feel like, yeah, it's been what, like a good, well, you announced, um, what UFO 50. UFO 50 we announced first. Yeah, and and then more recently than that you announced Splunky 2. But yeah, I feel like but there pretty was... actually pretty soon after we announced UFO 50. Yeah, it's like yeah. a few months. Yeah, but like in that in that intervening time, did you just take some personal time? I know that you like became a father in that time. Did yeah. you just take some like family years, or you were just like, I did Splunky. I'm I'm just I'm off Oops. the. Sorry, I'm off the game thing for a while, and then you came back to it. Or were you kind of working on backburner things during that time, or what? I feel like yeah. Publicly, you were very quiet, aside yeah. from just occasional personal updates or you know family photos or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took a took some time off, and then my wife and I had a kid, and obviously that takes a lot of time. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Energy. Yeah. So uh, for the first two years of my daughter's life i worked on this monkey book which was raised uh gabe durham of boss fight books approached me about writing a book about spelunky and i always enjoyed writing i did a lot of writing for tick source about other people's games and i wrote some tutorials i have a uh, tumblr called make games yeah i haven't updated in a while but i wrote a lot of my game design ideas down and yeah yeah, I just, I've always enjoyed it, and so um, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to take also, just kind of gather my thoughts about Spelunky and jot them down before I completely forgot about them, basically, and yeah. sort of end that era, it felt like. Yeah. And just, yeah, look back, it was a lot, of, it was a retrospective for me, it was a way to write a game design book, which I've always wanted to do also yeah and which yeah. i mean and the book is fantastic i mean i've told you that i'm like a huge fan of it i think it's a really really good holistic personal perspective on like what making that game meant and where it came from but also just good clear-headed like design thinking and an explanation of kind of design philosophy stuff thanks yeah i yeah i wanted to meld a history of the making of spelunky with game design yeah. Which I felt really fit a book about Spelunky because Spelunky is a mix of platformer and roguelike. And so, yeah, that was that was a really good project to have something that I could work on while learning how to become a parent. Right. And kind of yeah get get that going. Um, yeah. And then once my daughter became older and we had a little more time, I started looking into making games again. How did UFO 50 come about? Which, if you can share, if you can give the, the elevator pitch for what UFO 50 is for for listeners. Yeah, how, how it's did that become a thing? 50 games in one with the story, like the fictional story behind it being that these are 50 games made for a, a fictional console from the 80s. Yeah. But, yeah, the big... For me, it was always, you know... 
50 games in one. I just want to hit people over the head. <laughs> You're getting 50 games. And what does that mean? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think from what I remember from the, the announcement of it, it's not like they're like little like WarioWare games or something. It's like, these are 50, yeah. like more substantial games. Like you might think of as being on an NES cart or an Atari cartridge. Or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're smaller than the, like bigger Nintendo games, right? But yeah, they're they're games. Yeah. I mean, th- yeah, they're not micro games at all. Yeah, or did mini ever, games. Did you ever play? It was on like the on the DS, I think. There was the Game Center CX. Yeah, game. retro game challenge or something. Yeah, like that. where they where they made a bunch of new retro style, yeah. like 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 you're saying, fictional titles that would make sense on in a retro. Um, game generation and you played through them as the progression through the right. game. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely heard about it. I didn't play it until after yeah. we started working on UFO fifty. Yeah. The biggest uh, inspiration for UFO fifty was the floppy disk my parents had with all those little games on it. Yeah. Shareware discs that kind of were similar, like five hundred and one shareware discs. Right, yeah. The a pirate and Famicom cart that a family friend had oh, wow. back in the day. Those are like my personal experiences yeah. that inspired me. And then also just the little games I made with John Perry yeah. as Black Eye Software. Yeah. And that's really how the idea came about was I was talking with John and we had just finished our card game, Time Barons. We made a, a card game um, and we wanted to make video games again. And John had really worked in video games much since Eternal Daughter. He had done other things, like I said, music, film, yeah. board and card games. Yeah. And so we're talking about making a game together again. And given our history, given the fact that John hadn't done like commercial indie game development before, it just really made sense to make small games with Game Maker. But at this point, it just... I, I didn't really want to just make like, you know, Snow Brawl or Diabolica and just release it as as freeware with John. Um, and so I, yeah, it, the idea just came to me, okay, what if we just made a bunch of little games like we did in the past, but put them all together? Yeah. And then... And you're working with more collaborators too, yeah. right? Since then, I brought Eric on board. Eric was like kind of the the third founding member of UFO 50. Like right after I just decided with John we were going to do this 50 games. Yeah. Like once we got over the fact that we're going to make 50. For me it was very important that it was 50 and nothing less. <laughs> right. 50 is just Clearly. it's that <laughs> it's just that nice big number. Right. Yeah. 20 yeah. is like that's a lot of games but 50 is a lot, a lot of games. 50, I, I always, I, I kept telling John, like, 50 will punch you in the face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I brought Eric on, who did the music for Spelunky on Xbox. Okay, yeah. But who since was getting into Game Maker and making some small games himself. Okay, gotcha. And so I brought him on, and the three of us really started this project. And then, then we brought Ojiro 
and Paul on later, Rogero right. being the creator of Downwell. Downwell, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it was uh, Eric actually who suggested bringing oh, cool. Rogero on board. Yeah, because Downwell was a game that that feels very much of a piece with that. It had more of like um, kind of like MSX style graphics, yeah, like, like one color bit. palette and stuff. Right. Um, but it it was very much that sort of like this could have been made in 1984. Uh, you know, as far as just like the complexity of what. The actual mechanics of the yeah. presentation are, but it's a modern take on the kind of. I mean, it's sort of like an endless runner, it's like an endless faller kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and but, Eric yeah. did the music. Oh, cool. For that game, and okay. I think I think some audio yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. Also, so he knew Ojiro from that. And then, so shortly after UFO fifty, you were like, and also Spelunky two is yeah. in development. Possibly on the moon of some nature. I remember there was some sort of there. There was some zooming there's in some on hints. the moon of there's some. some sort. There's some hints about what's going on. Um, so what is the trailer. what's the relationship between the development of UFO 50, which even if you're making one quarter of 50 games, that's a lot, and and how Spelunky 2 came to be. So both those games I mentioned with Spelunky one. It really informed how I saw the process of making games going forward. Like, I, I like the development of Spelunky 1. And that idea of knowing a lot about the project before you go into it. Yeah. And so, UFO 50 and Spelunky 2 really came about because... There are people around me who I wanted to work with who I felt like would be really great for these projects. And so for UFO 50, it was John and then Eric. But like I said, the idea came about because I wanted to make something with John. It wasn't like I had the idea for UFO 50. Oh, I'm going to bring John on board. It was. It started with, I want to make something with John again. Yeah. And what would be a good project for that? And then with Spelunky 2, I always kind of toyed with the idea of making a sequel. Well, because, like, because, I mean, Spelunky is such a rich template to put new ideas into. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of really cool games have come out since Spelunky 1 that are procedurally generated and things like that. But nothing yeah. has really felt to me like, my, you know, what my idea for Spelunky 2 would be like. Yeah. And then, also, there just aren't very many indie sequels Right, yeah. I think indie developers, they spend a lot of time on a game and they're really burnt out. They have the freedom to just try a new idea. Yeah. And they do, right? Yeah. And there aren't a lot. And so I think I... Part of me, I think, also took it as a bit of a challenge. Like, this isn't something that's done very much. And in, yeah. in that sense, it seems like a, a good idea, right? Like, sure. just... Do, do something that other people aren't doing, right? Yeah. right? Like, it, yeah. it's kind of a way to um, stand out a little bit from the crowd also. For but sure. yeah, there's... I mean, Spelunky 1 also just... It, there's a lot of kind of currency behind it as an idea, as a concept. Right. And it seemed like to abandon that and just do completely new stuff um, was sort of a, a waste of, of that work that yeah. we put into it. and. Yeah, it, it fits in really nicely with this idea of understanding what I'm getting into with my next projects. Yeah. And so the people that 
I knew that I would have to make this game with, or else it just wouldn't happen, was Blit. Blitworks. They did the port of Spelunky to PlayStation, and they were the only people who had both the skills and manpower and also the experience with Spelunky. Right, the familiarity with how it all works. Right, and the familiarity in that I've worked with them before Right. to, I think, tackle this. Because I would be very nervous about working with a new team because yeah. I do know that team dynamics are so important. Yeah. And that now I understand I work in a very specific and particular way Yeah. where... For example, if I'm if I work with a company and they're they're a company that wants to have a Skype meeting every morning or something like I can't do that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like that would just be too taxing on me. I, I and Blit I knew from experience really worked in a way that that gelled. Where we do have a lot of communication, but it's through emails, through Google Docs, and then the occasional Skype and and during GDC and stuff like in person yeah. meeting. Yeah. But we can kind of like. I think just communicate in a way that that feels a little more natural to me, and so they were the perfect fit for Spelunky too. What is the what is the I mean, how much have you talked about what the kind of development relationship is with because because it is a very different thing, right? Like Spelunky one made freeware, and then you worked with a partner, like programming partner, to make the the updated version. And now with Splunky 2, it's like you as an individual and then this remote team. And like, uh, what what is the, the kind of balance of how much you're kind of like directly pushing specifics and how much is coming from their side? And I don't know, it seems like a very a new way for you to, to make something like this, even though you have Splunky 1 to refer back to. Yeah, I mean, I think having that's having Spelunky one is really huge. It's something that we can always refer to. Yeah. So but I can be it, like, you is know, it more of like a collaborative thing. Is it? Are are they like bringing like here's this here's this cool idea for a, a new type of enemy or something that that we have and you guys are discussing it or like I, I don't know. I'm just interested. I think they're in how more that focused. I would say they're more focused on the technical aspects than say Andy was. Yeah. Andy contributed a lot of design and actually artwork to oh, interesting. to uh Spelunky One. And Andy's from the click and play community, so he's a very he has a very broad range of skills. Right. Because that's what you really needed back then. I mean because right. these are very these are mostly like made by one person yeah. games or like a couple people and everyone did art and programming and stuff. Yeah. And so Andy is, is like a polymath type of developer <laughs> too. Right. And Blit, I think is they're more focused on the technical stuff, but a lot of ideas and things do come out from that. Cool. I would say they are more focused on the, yeah. on the technical side, but there's certainly a lot of creativity within that. Yeah. Like, talking about implementation of things well and you know you are like spelunky is a game that yeah the the underlying systems are so important and like mean so much to what the player yeah. experience is that it's like a lot of that the nuance of that is right. is crucial yeah with spelunky on xbox we had the freeware version as our blueprint so andy and i could be like okay well with spelunky one you know, is this going to, oh, yeah, with the Xbox version, I mean, is it going to be like the freeware version in this aspect? Let's do this. 
like from the freeware version, but let's just change it a little like this. Yeah. Let's add this to the game. It's going to fit in with the the rest of the game yeah. in this way and then, you know, pointing at the, the freeware version yeah. for that too. And it's very similar with Splunky 2 where we have Splunky 1 where a lot of times I can be like, you know, this part of Splunky 1 I would like to extend or this part I would like to kind of replace with, with this. Yeah. And Splunky 2 is... A lot of it is really just figuring out what what makes Spelunky really Spelunky. Right. You know, what's, what is the core that we want to pull out? Wait, the, the great thing about that sentence is the first use of the word Spelunky was a noun, and the second <laughs> use of it was an adjective. Yep. What makes Spelunky just so Spelunky? <laughs> <laughs> how can we Spelunky <laughs> Spelunky to make Spelunky more Spelunky? How can we make it Spelunkier? How yeah, can we exactly. make it the Spelunkiest Spelunky <laughs> that anybody's ever Spelunked? But that's that's kind of yeah. like a big yeah, impetus yeah. For, for why we're doing it. <laughs> well, is that because that's the thing. Because I was thinking to myself just now, I was sort of like, what when you were saying like oh it feels like it's sort of a waste to not you know extend you know to this this thing that you spend all this time making Spelunky feels like the kind of game you could totally just keep porting it to new platforms as they come out for yeah like I don't I I don't remember if you guys have said anything about like Spelunky Switch or whatever but it's like you could totally just be like oh we have Spelunky just put it there and more people buy it you know yeah, um, sure. and so it feels like Splunky 2 must be an expression of basically you having had a bunch of new ideas for Splunky in the intervening years that you actually want to do. That you don't want to just like shove them back into Splunky 1 that need to be their own thing. Yeah, Splunky 1, it's totally done. It yeah. feels to me like a complete package. Exactly. But but you you've obviously have been, you know, it's it's a it can't not be a big part of your headspace after all of that. And so yeah. presumably you're like, oh, but what if we did this with Splunky? Or this would be really cool to mm-hmm. do with Splunky. And that leads to actually making a new title in the series, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think about it kind of like Super Mario Brothers 1, which feels... When people say, oh, Splunky's feels to me like a perfect game. And I, I understand what they mean. I, I think a game like Super Mario Brothers is perfect. You don't want... Nintendo to just keep adding to Super Mario Brothers 1. You want to make Super Mario Brothers 2 and 3 and, you know, all the way up to Odyssey, right? (laughs) Right. And I think it's the same thing with Spelunky 1. I do feel like it's perfect with all its imperfections. Sure. And with Spelunky 2, I want to extend upon the Spelunky world and upon all the mechanics and the ways that I, I don't think that, yeah, like I haven't seen before. Yeah. And that fit more just uniquely within within Spelunky. Yeah. Do I remember from the... I haven't watched the, the teaser trailer since it was released, but am I remembering that there's the implication that the that Spelunky 2 is about the daughter of the yellow hat guy from Spelunky 1? It's, it's strongly implied, and yeah. people know that I, I've talked about my family life right. a little bit and being a dad and how inspirational that's been and that's that's been a big influence obviously my yeah. daughter has been yeah just a big inspiration on yeah. me creatively and it makes so much sense in that Spelunky 2 being a sequel to Spelunky 1 and then coming after I 
became a dad, which was in between Spelunky 1 and Spelunky 2. Yeah. Just that that would be a big theme and, and yeah. inspiration for does, me. Does it feel personal to you? It, it does. Because it's one of those things where it's like, I can understand, any game that anyone spends a lot of time making is personal to them. But Spelunky doesn't easily feel like, oh yeah, that's such a personal creation. Yeah, yeah no, like, totally. And, and, and it's interesting to be like, Oh, but maybe Splunky 2 kind of is in a more clear way. No, that's that's totally true. I think with Spelunky 1, it definitely started out more as... With a freeware version, it was very, I guess, mechanically focused in terms of the design. Yeah. It wasn't... I didn't have, like, a personal story or, you know, things that were happening to me in my personal life that yeah. I was... I think the game came out of personal situ personal situation in that, like I said, yeah, Aquaria was very is very intense, and then I wanted to move back to the, you know, making games solo yeah. in that sense. But the actual game itself was not trying to tell that story. Yeah. It was more like these are just cool kind of mechanical ideas, and then these are themes that work well with the mechanics. With the Xbox version, it got a little more personal in the sense that. You have, for example, Yang, I think, telling people to do their best and, you know, don't be afraid of failure and right. a little bit like that. But yeah, Spelunky 2 is definitely... Well, um, and, and I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I always thought that, like, you're a, you're an Asian-American game developer and I always thought there was something that felt maybe a little bit intentional about, like, the tutorial character being this, like, Asian, you know, character, like, a little bit of personal representation and like the the front of the game yeah 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 for sure there are things like that and i think they're just um i don't know i think the whole kind of kind of cyclical sort of nature of the game you know i i'm, I'm not religious myself but that that kind of feeling of of sort of like i don't know like struggling through something and 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 starting over and and things i think has has mirrored sort of the way i feel with my life and developing these these games one after another and <laughs> sort of slowly building up my my understanding and my knowledge and, and my mastery yeah of my craft right and i think spelunky is a lot about that right yeah. but it's just it's not as overt i think as putting Spelunky guy's daughter right. in Spelunky too, <laughs> right, right? right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I can't, you know, there are themes that I think are pretty obvious from the trailer, like right. family and friendship and things like that, yeah. that I have, that mean a lot to everybody, but have also meant a lot to me in terms of my career as well. Just yeah. meeting friends along the way, you know, just other game developers, the people I've worked with, and then, yeah, now starting a family and then trying to be a game developer in that context also. Right. And thinking about my daughter as, as you know, she's this new generation of people and, and yeah. what she's going to do with her life and things like that. And, that. and that feels like it is very on theme also with the kind of like mechanical metaphor of Splunky that, you know, Splunky is about this one person just trying yeah. to get to this goal and then the follow-up to it being about like 
them actually producing a new generation of, mm-hmm. of someone that's going to try their own, you know, to accomplish their own goals is, is really interesting. It's, it's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I can, I think I can reveal that the, the, a lot of the game is just sort of about more of these, these like community communities and just personal sort of relationships and things like that. Huh. Um, that's that, that's surprising. I, I wouldn't have. I mean, just having played Splunky, I wouldn't have said that that would have been part of the thesis. But it makes it sound like a really interesting interpretation of what you're going to. Yeah, do within the context of the Splunky classic mechanics. mechanics and everything, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I mean, I can't wait to find out more about it, as I'm sure so many people are, are looking forward to to what it's going to be like. But thank you so much for taking part of your your day today to talk to me about all this stuff. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great it's talking. To you. All right. See ya. See ya.